I could go home after that. That's good. Good morning, New Hope. Glad to be with you. I was telling Michael this morning that I think I, I've come to the place in my life where I love Palm Sunday as much or maybe even greater than Easter, not to diminish Easter at all. Um, maybe it's like the, uh, do you like Thanksgiving better than Christmas kind of thing? I frankly like Thanksgiving better than Christmas. Um, you know, there's no gifts involved. You just sit around and you eat and watch football. It's great, right? Um, Palm Sunday, I'm not uh, equating it for that reason, but for a different reason. I'm equating it with this reality. You're going to see the intentionality of Jesus to go after you this morning. I can't think of a more deliberate action than what you see in Matthew 21. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I'm going to invite you to go to Matthew 21. Maybe have it electronically or a hard copy. If you need a Bible, we have free Bibles out in the atrium. You be sure to grab one of those. If you're at home, it's a good time to open up your Bible, download the notes. If you haven't picked up the notes and you want them, they're in the atrium out there. Here's what I mean by the intentionality of Jesus. Jesus. Um, heroes usually are not intentional. Someone doesn't become a hero by starting out in the morning and saying, I'm going to do something heroic today. Usually they respond to a situation. And, and they act upon the situation, and people then begin proclaiming them heroic. Jesus is the only person I know who set out to do exactly what he does. And I want you to see that intentionality perhaps through a new lens this morning. I'm going to paint six images for you as we work through what is a very familiar story. If you're new to church, not so familiar to you, but if you grew up in church, you're going to know this, but I want to give you a new view on it, these six images that you're going to look at. Before we do that, I'd love to pray with you. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you for every single soul represented here, those who are gathered in living rooms, those who are watching from cars, those who are at work right now, and those who are in this auditorium. Our hearts are united to this place where we want to know more about you and who we are to you, and we ask that you would reveal yourself at this time. Father, that can only happen through the work of the Holy Spirit. So God, I ask not only that you would unleash the Holy Spirit, but you would brood over us wherever we're watching from, wherever we're part of this from, that we will leave forever impacted with these visual images in our mind. God, I plead for that in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. No thing on this planet is flawless except you. It's a stunning thought. Not even the most perfect diamond is without flaw. So no thing on this planet is absolutely flawless. Yet even under the most powerful spiritual microscope, a flaw cannot be found in you because of Jesus. He's transformed you from flawed to flawless. Now some of you look skeptical when I say that. Like, are you sure? I'm not so sure I feel that way. The Bible is perfectly clear that even though you may not feel it and you certainly can't see it, God has taken the initiative to make you spiritually flawless 
if you are in relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me support that from Scripture. It's not just Mark speaking. Look at God's Word. Two weeks ago, we were in Romans. Here we go, Romans 8. Let me show you this. There is now no condemnation. That means without flaw. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Paul's stating unequivocally that any reason there might have been for casting you into hell has been removed because of what Jesus did for you. It's been completely taken away. Here's another verse to support that. Look with me on the screen, Romans 8, verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Catch this, verse 10. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. Here's a struggle that's all too real. Chances are very good when you got up and looked in the mirror this morning, you didn't like what you were looking at. And as beautiful as you look right now, you can point to your own personal flaws. Other people may not be aware of them, but you're acutely aware of them. You may not care for how you look physically in the mirror. You may especially not like how you look in the spiritual mirror. You're all too aware of what you were involved in yesterday, five days ago, five months ago, five years ago. No one knows us like us. We know exactly what we're like physically and what we're like spiritually. But what I'm about to say, I say under the authority of the Word of God because of what He finished on the cross. When God sees you, He sees a perfect work. It's a reality of the Bible. Even though you may not see it, and even though you may not feel it, God sees you as flawless. So Paul can write with great authority in Romans 8. Look with me on the screen at this. Romans 8, verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? The flawless. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Without Jesus, you are flawed. With Jesus, you are flawless. You know these things. If you've been in church for a while, you know this. You understand this. What I intend to expand upon with you this morning, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter morning, is the magnificence of what Jesus did to bring about that reality. What did He have to do to make you flawless? And as a result of it, it's going to make you a better Easter worshiper. It'll make you more grateful when you take the cup and the bread in communion next time. Perhaps you'll be here for Good Friday. I hope you will. It'll make you better in your social circle when you interact with individuals. And I promise you from the get-go, I intend to be very, very cautious over the time of our three times together, not to make it about us, but rather to make it about Him what He did to make us flawless. And to process this reality, what Jesus had to do to make us flawless, I need to set the stage with you. I need to paint these six images for you. They'll go fairly quickly. Six specific, specific scenes in the midst of the Passion Week 
So we're going to look at Matthew 21, but we're also going to use Mark, and we're also going to use Luke, and we're also going to use John, eyewitnesses at the scene. In context, Jesus has been at a dinner party, and the party's been thrown for Lazarus and for Jesus, and lots of people have heard about it, and they want to see this dead guy who's now walking, and so they show up, and we find this in John 12, 9. The large crowd of Jews then learned that he was there, meaning Jesus. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. See, word spread really, really quickly that there's a dead guy a few miles away, and he's no longer dead. He's been revived, and he's walking around. I'd walk a few miles to go see that, wouldn't you? I, I can see why the crowd is pouring out of the streets of Jerusalem to go see this. At this period of time and this week, messianic hopes are running very, very, very high. You can envision the electric energy in the air that's taking place at this time because it's a combination of like the final four mixed with spring break in Florida. Lori and I lived in Arizona when we were in our 20s a few years ago. And <laughs> what? A few years ago, a few years back, we lived in Arizona. And when we lived in Arizona, the this, this final four was taking place in Tucson, and it was spring break, and the city was electric. Everybody wanted to be there. There was so much energy. It was pulsating in the street. You could feel it. That's exactly what happens during the week of Passover. So many people on vacation who have come into the city, and they want to be there. Normal population of the city of Jerusalem during Passover week. 160,000 normally during the year. According to historians, it swelled to two and a half million people during this period of time. Not enough lodging for everybody. People are camping out all over the place. And they've got time on their hands. And they hear about Jesus and they hear about Lazarus. And the crowd learns that Jesus revived this man from the dead. So as you go through John 12, you find that one day later, they heard that same Jesus is coming into town. He's coming into Jerusalem. And they begin pouring out of the city to meet him. And Jesus is just cresting the hill as they meet up with him. One crowd behind him, one crowd in front of him. He's left the city of Jericho. And he ascends 17 miles. It's 17 miles from Jericho to Jerusalem. 3,000 feet higher above sea level, sea level than what Jericho is. So by the time he gets to the hill, Mount Zion, there's a beautiful 300-foot view over the top of the Temple Mount. He's looking down on the Temple Mount, and Jesus is cresting that hill when he meets that crowd. I'm going to give you Matthew's view of what he saw during that period of time. There's a lot of verses here coming at you, but just stay with me. Follow this flow. Matthew 21, verse 1, when they approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage, at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden." Matthew's quoting Zechariah there. Keep going. Verse 6. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them. And he sat on the coats. 
Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And then the most unusual thing happens in verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making a robber's den. If you lived in the Middle East at that period of time in some parts of Europe, you would know that when a king rode a horse, he's very likely riding a horse out of victory, especially if he's on a white horse. He's either riding into battle or he's just been coming from battle. If he's a victorious king, he's definitely on a white horse. But if a king was coming into a capital city and wanted to communicate to everyone that he was coming in peace, he'd ride on a donkey. We might think of it as really low grade at this point, but not to the people of this era. When they rode on a donkey, they were communicating. They're not only coming in peace, they're coming in humility. And we get this first image and the second image of Jesus combined together, incredibly humble, incredibly meek. What is meek? If you've heard that word before, maybe you're thinking of it as someone who's wimpy. Meek actually means power under control. You think of a powerful horse. This word meek is used of horses. Lots of muscle, but with a bridle in its mouth, with a bit. It's power under control. That's what meek is, power under control. And so we have Jesus in complete power, but in absolute control, incredibly humble. But also, here's the other image, the second image. He's strategic. It's very strategic in what he's doing because he's orchestrating all of these events. Matthew and Mark and Luke record that he sent two disciples, meaning he set in motion all of these events, which will culminate in the voluntary sacrifice of himself on the cross. And it was planned from eternity past. God the Father, God the Son, planning together in cooperation that this would happen. And Jesus knew this would be the result of these events. So he arranges for his own ride and he gives very specific instructions. It's a deliberate act of self-disclosure for those who have eyes to see because the writers of the Bible understood that what they were doing was they were seeing what Zechariah had prophesied 500 years earlier. Let me show you this from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. And if you kept going with that verse, it would say, mounted on the colt, the foal of a donkey. And everybody knew this was a messianic prophecy. This was a passage that was written 500 years earlier. And Jesus is fulfilling it. And he's saying, here I am. Look at me. I'm the one who's fulfilling this promise of Scripture. So he's arranging for his own ride, and this is not a spur-of-the-moment decision. All of history has been building to this moment in time. So we've got a donkey, and we've got a colt, the full of a donkey, and they're tied together, and they're not visual. You can't see them. If he could, he would just say, over there, see those two? Go get them. But they don't know where they're at. They're somewhere in the city, and Jesus knows all things, and so he says 
to two of his disciples, you go into the city and you go look around and you're going to find a colt and you're going to find its mother. And I want you to bring them back to me. And he's going to sit on that colt. Now, this colt had never been ridden, according to what Mark wrote. And any of you that know anything about farm life, for someone to get on an animal that's never been sat on before, you're talking about a loss of control. This is the same Jesus who calms the storm. This is the same Jesus with control over nature. And he sits on a colt who would be freaking out by hundreds of thousands of people shouting and screaming for Jesus. And yet it's completely calm because the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who created everything is sitting on its back and he has everything under control. And here comes the third image. He's not just humble. He's not just strategic. But now he comes as one who's worthy of praise. Look at Luke 19. Luke 19, 36. And as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. Now, spreading your coat on the road is a, a visual way of saying, we put ourselves under your authority. We're placing ourselves under your feet. It was always reserved for royalty. You don't see people doing this today, but they would always do this for a king. Spread their clothing, the thing most precious to them, take it and lay it down in the street and let the king walk on and saying, we're in complete submission to you. That's what you find these individuals doing. And then Mark gives us the vision for why we call it Palm Sunday. Mark 11, spreading leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. The palm trees are every place. It's like Florida. Lots and lots of palm trees, plentiful in Jerusalem. They lay them down, and then we get John's view, and John gives us a theological insight. John says it this way in John 12. They began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And this is a giant step, and here's the problem. They already have a king, and his name is Caesar. And they're just outside the capital city where Rome is in control and Pilate rules with an iron fist. And that king doesn't give up his throne to anyone. Caesar rules over the Roman Empire. And they're saying, we want a new king. And so we get that insight from John. But these followers know something about Caesar. These who are shouting the name of Jesus, Hosanna, they know that Caesar has never turned water into wine. They know that Caesar can't make the blind see. They know that Caesar can't allow the deaf to hear children laughing. And they certainly know that Caesar has never raised anyone from the dead. So they're looking at Jesus thinking, we got this. This is our guy. He belongs to us. He's one of us. And so they make the ultimate claim. They take one giant step forward and they make a theological statement. Look with me again at Matthew's version. Matthew 21, 9. They were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. And they're quoting Psalms. Psalms 118. Psalms 118 is from the Hallel. It's the conqueror's psalm. It's the deliverance psalm. It's reserved exclusively for the Messiah. 
And so they begin shouting this title, Hosanna to the son of David. And son of David was reserved for the one, the one and only who would be the Messiah. So you've got a massive crowd proclaiming Jesus with this title, crying out for him to deliver, pleading, Jesus, save us now, great Messiah. Deliver us, save us in this moment. And he's heading in towards the capital city. And they've got these thoughts on their minds that nothing can stop him. Will they see fire from heaven? Will they see the glory of God like when he wiped out Egypt? Do they get to relive those moments again? Because in their mind, what they need is political delivery. They, they live in political turbulence. Their world is chaos when it comes to politics. And they think that Jesus is their solution. And because it's their agenda, they believe it should be God's agenda. And this huge crowd is shouting so loud that the cheer is deafening. And we get an insight now from Luke, Luke 19. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. See, the officials have a whistle in their mouth and they're on the court and they blow the whistle and they say, there's a penalty on the court. You've got to stop them. You're, they're praising you like you're God. Rebuke them. Stop them. And in this moment, if slow motion cameras had been invented in the first century, I think this would revert to a slow motion moment in which Jesus just opens his arms and says, bring the praise. Just let him bring it. Watch his response. Luke 19, 40, but Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to balance the humility of Jesus with the immodesty of Jesus. The one who rides the donkey into the city, who sits on the colt, a foal of a donkey, saying, I come in great humility, is the same one who says, the Father and I are one. I am that I am. I am the great. I am before Abraham was, I am. And you have the balance of humility to immodesty, willing to say, let him bring it. And to the Pharisees who are listening, he's saying, even a bag of rocks can see who I am. Let them worship me. And his statement is an evaluation of reality. Let me show you this from Scripture. It comes right out of Colossians 1.16. Because everything is created by him and for him. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. You, new hope, exist for the glory and the praise of Jesus Christ. If you wonder what your purpose is, why do I exist? Why am I here on this planet? It's for the praise of God. It's for the, the glory of God. The universe, this planet, everything was created by him and for him. And Jesus is simply saying, even rocks bow to my majesty the same rocks are still there today, just waiting for the second coming of the king. So we get these multiple images of Jesus appearing that day. 
And, and this fourth image is not just of him humble. It's not just of him being strategic. It's just not just him being worthy of praise, but here's one that's a bit unsettling. It's God weeping, God crying on the hillside. Luke 19.41, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept. And how you interpret this has a great deal to do with how you view God. How you interpret his weeping, because these tears are an evaluation of reality. Finish the verse out with me. Look with me again at the screen, Luke 19. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. See, he knows they have an agenda. They think something else is going to bring peace. He knows what really will bring peace. So here's the problem. They've got the pinnacle of a relationship opportunity right in front of them. The relationship with God sits on a colt, and they miss it. They're completely oblivious to what really is available because the crowd thinks it's about politics. The crowd thinks that Jesus has come to give them a political solution. If we get the right person in office... If we get the right guy, we win. And Jesus says, I have to weep over this because you're completely off kilter about why I'm here. Look with me on the screen, Acts 17, 26. He made from one man, meaning Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God. That's why you're here. That's why we exist and move and live and have our being, that we might grope for him. So here on this ancient hillside, here, church, here is why Jesus is peerless, meaning he has no peers. There's no one like him. This is exactly how the God-man should respond. He's doing exactly what you would expect him to do. Jesus continually brings together things that seem like opposites. He walks in uncontested power, yet in utter humility, he rides a colt into the city. In a couple days, he'll go into Jerusalem, captured and crucified, yet says, I can change this with a snap of my fingers, and a legion of angels will come to rescue me. He weeps with Mary and Martha over the death of their brother Lazarus, yet he says to them, hold on, and you're going to see the power of God. And now we watch him walk into the temple. The same one who is just weeping on the hillside is now flipping over the tables of money changers, yet moments earlier he's crying over the city. And I'm asking you, where among men on planet Earth do you ever find the combination of immeasurable power and immeasurable compassion in one world leader? No place. Jesus is peerless. This is exactly what the God-man should look like. So we come to the fifth image, and the fifth image is it's not just humility, it's not just strategic, it's not just praiseworthy, it's not just that he has overwhelming compassion, but here comes an equal but opposite image of the God of action and the God of anger who demands holiness in his presence. 
You go with me to this image of him. The chronology I want you to understand is that Jesus has been through the proclamation that he's king. He's been through the shouts of Hosanna, and then he spends the night in Bethany, and the next morning he comes into Jerusalem, and we pick it up here. Matthew 21, verse 12, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the table of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a robber's den. And I'm here to tell you that cleansing is completely symbolic. And I don't mean that it didn't physically happen. It physically happened, but it's completely symbolic. If this happened on Monday or Tuesday, and it did, it happened in that beginning part of the week, it had very little lasting effect. The following Monday and Tuesday, Jesus is dead, and they don't know that he's resurrected, and the money changers are right back in the temple again. They had very lasting, permanent effect. They, they come right back the next Monday. However, if you dive deep and you go subterranean on what's being communicated here, the long-lasting impact of what's being communicated, it's profound. Jesus enters the temple complex, and there's thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. There's the outer court, the court of the Gentiles. There's the inner courts, the court of the women, the court of the men, and then there's the place where the temple actually stands. And you can visualize this. If you've been to the Breslin Center, there's the court where the athletes play basketball. And then there's the outer circle where the seats are. And then if you go out beyond that circle to the outer area, that's where the merchants are, where they sell their merchandise. And Jesus has found himself walking into the outer complex. You need to understand that while people were on first century spring break, if you will, most people who went to Jerusalem at some point went to the temple. They're there either to offer sacrifices or to give money in the offering, or if nothing else, just to experience what it would be like to be in the temple and maybe gain some ritual purification. But according to Levitical law, only unblemished animals could be brought for a sacrifice. And those unblemished animals had to be inspected by a priest. Annas is the high priest. He's the chief. He's in control of the entire temple complex. And he appoints individuals who will inspect the animals. But what Annas has done, has, he has franchised out the market area, what they would call the court of the Gentiles, the outer area. So he allows the money changers to come into that area, and he allows those who would sell animals to come into that area because there's no approved animal that goes into the temple to be sacrificed without being examined by the priest first. Within the previous decade, what Annas had done is he had franchised out the opportunities to become a merchant in that environment, and he was a corrupt and a vile man, and he viewed his position as a means for gaining wealth. And the business opportunities within that court became known as the Bazaar of Annas. And essentially, he's franchising out the opportunity to sell animals in that environment. So these merchants bought sacrificial animals outside, and then they would sell them inside. 
And if you've ever been to the Breslin Center or Tiger Stadium or maybe Disney and paid four to five dollars for a Coke, you know what it is to be under someone's environment like that. You'd look at that $4 cup with either Tom Izzo's face on it or a big green S and you'd say, why is that four bucks? I can get that for 50 cents in the store. Well, you're inside the bazaar of Annas. And the animal that you brought for a sacrifice has been disqualified because it doesn't meet their standards. You can only use the approved animals that Annas has approved. And he determined that any animal that was not purchased in one of his franchise operations would be unapproved. So historian Alfred Edersheim, who's done a lot of research on this, he tells us that most individuals coming in there, even though they're on vacation, they had to pay up to 10 times the amount for the value of an animal. Not only that, if you came in from Roman territory and you wanted to put an offering in the offering box, you couldn't use Roman coins. You had to use Jewish coins. And so you had to go to the money changers and you would give them your Roman coins and they would trade you out for Jewish coins. And those would be approved and you could put those in the offering box. And if you've ever been to an ATM and wanted to get $20 out and had to pay $3 to get the $20 out, you know what's going on here. There's a fee these vendors paid a 25% fee to Annas. And so they marked it up by 25% to the people who came to get currency. See, Jesus is speaking literally of a den of robbers. When he refers to this, look with me on the screen, Matthew 21, 12. That's why he took this action. He drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And so now the temple complex is in complete disarray. Animals are running all over the place. Doves are flying away. Feathers are dropping. Coins are clanking across the floor. And the priests are completely helpless to raise a hand against him because the people have just pronounced him Messiah. So they take no action whatsoever. And we see Jesus cleansing this worship place. Church, hear this. The temple was built for the worship of God so that God's people could draw close in relationship to him it was never meant to be a stockyard or a bank where extortioners were protected. The temple had become a living visual for just how far mankind had moved away from a relationship with God whatsoever. And that's why I say this is a symbolic act on Jesus' part. These images that you're seeing show us why Jesus is peerless, what the God-man should look like, because his actions are flawless. He's flawless in his attitude. He's flawless in his relationships in every way. But how does all this help us to understand what he had to do to make us spiritually flawless? How do I assemble these pieces together? We've seen so far this morning what individuals, what mankind has been expecting of God, what they want God to do to set things right, and how they expect him to do it. We want justice, God. We want you to bring justice, and we want it now. I'll tell you that I'm very confident that Jesus lived in a world of complete social injustice. You think it's unique to our generation? You just examine earlier generations. Jesus lived with this every single day. 
He dealt with social injustice. He dealt with economic injustice. He dealt with deprivation in crime. He dealt with poverty. You see it all over the Bible, and he deals with it every single day. The oppression at the hands of Rome is notorious. So ask yourself this question. How much injustice did Jesus personally witness while living under the boot of Rome? Constant. Every single day. But what's subtle and what's shocking is that Jesus doesn't focus on those things. The one who created diamonds and gold could easily give it away if that would be the solution to the problem. But you don't find him focusing on that because mankind's primary problem is infinitely greater than our problems with other men. See, we can't solve our problems with each other until the God problem is solved. We can't solve our problems with each other until the problem of our relationship to God is solved. If Jesus is God, and he is, it's only days until he's nailed to the cross. And immediately after the apex of his coronation, when he's declared king, you find him inside the very complex that bears his name. It was built, paid for, and designed by God to bear his name, to honor the name that is above every name. And it's in that place that the Lord God is most offended. And he's motivated to take action because God has been diminished in the eyes of the people. Because it's in that place where people were supposed to encounter God. In that place, the cleansing has to take place first. And there are no social programs that can set aright the core issue until the core issue is addressed. Everything else remains broken. And the core issue is man has neglected God. And as long as things in the relationship to God are broken, things cannot and will not be set right in society. It's why the cleansing of the temple is symbolic. It's the very image of what he's about to do on the cross of Calvary. Hear me on this. As pervasive and as destructive as the evils of our society are, Racial injustice, social injustice, the issues of the poor, economic depravity, criminal actions, weak political leaders. As bad as those things are, the great problems with society is not injustice, it's not inequity, it's not crime, it's not politics. The great problem, the core of humanity, first and foremost, has always been the willful abandonment of God. That is what Jesus is going after here. And they're looking on the surface. He's looking at the core. And now you know why he's weeping over the city. And we're getting these images sewn together. Because Jesus knows that humans have to be revived spiritually before there can be any lasting repair to society, before anything can happen in this fallen world that will be fixed. Which leads to our sixth and final image, and I want you to carry this one out the door with you. Before you reach for your car keys, just hear me. Fast forward to Thursday night. Jesus is in the garden. He's invited Peter, James, John, 
all of his disciples to be there. Judas has not come yet. Judas has not betrayed him yet. The Roman soldiers have not shown up with the torches and the chains. And we find Jesus in a position of very intimate communication with God the Father. And he's asked his friends to be with him in these final hours because God the Son became Jesus the man, and Jesus the man wants human companionship. The God-man wants his friends with him, and we see this in verse 41 of Luke 22. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. So it's late evening, and Palm Sunday is behind him, and the roars of the crowd has become a distant imprint on their memory. It's very quiet. You can hear the crickets and you can hear the night birds. And the evening has taken on a tone of its own because Jesus is facing something that the authors of Scripture struggle to capture. The disciples are caught up in a food coma and they fall off to sleep. They've just had the Last Supper with Jesus, and they nod in and out, and they can't seem to stay awake. And Jesus has pleaded with them to be with him, to stay awake, and they can't keep their eyes open, but a few of them are close enough to hear the God-man talking to God the Father, and he's pleading with him, and Mark captures this image in Mark 14, and he says, Abba, Father, All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. If you're new to church, how about his daddy? Daddy! the, The relationship is that intimate. Daddy, will you take this? Will you take this from me? Daddy, I know this is how we're supposed to make them flawless. But it's so much to bear. The writer of Hebrews captures the intensity of the moment. Look with me, Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Church, are we talking about spiritual death or are we talking about physical death? You can answer that question very quickly by asking yourself this. Is the Jesus I know from the Bible concerned about temporary things or is he concerned about eternal things? Is he concerned about physical death or is he concerned about spiritual death? He's crying out with loud cries to him who is able to save him from spiritual death. Jesus' concern is not with the temporary. So we get this glimpse from Luke 22, verse 40. Look with me. 
His sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. I'm not a physician. I don't pretend to be. I can use the internet just like the rest of you. Hematidrosis. You see the definition on the screen? This is the physical act of someone who's in emotional agony. It's a biological function of the human body. Look very closely at the definition. Severe mental anxiety and extreme stress activate the sympathetic nervous system to hemorrhage the vessels which supply the sweat glands. And Jesus has it pouring out of him like great drops. And I want to ask you a question that's going to seem like a very hard shift, church. How horrible is hell? Sin is spiritual death. Jesus knows what he's facing. How horrible is hell? The prospect of being separated from God and taking sin upon himself. How horrible is hell that God the Son who calmed the waters of the sea, who raised people from the dead, encounters the prospect of spiritual separation from God because he's about to become sin, and he goes into trauma, shock. If it was only the Roman whips that he was going to face, if if it was only the crown of thorns, We've seen very clearly this morning what man expects of God, what man demands of God, but they have no possible, we have no possible concept of what it will take for him to actually transform that which is very broken to that which is flawless. What he's going to have to personally endure, he is intensely aware. What man wants clouded by an imperfect understanding. What we think is most important, we want a temporary fix, a temporal fix. God has to bring an eternal fix. So how does he restore what is truly broken? What does he have to do to make you flawless? And it's not like this moment caught him by surprise. He's told his followers over and over and over again, the Son of Man will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will scourge him and crucify him. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down freely. He's known this moment is coming. It can't be his physical death that he has any fear of. He's known all about this. But now, fully God and fully man, and he's looking down the throat of hell. Do you get what he's about to endure? It's not the prospect of having his body shredded by Roman whips. It's not the crown of thorns. If that was all it was, not to minimize it, those nails pressing through his flesh, missing every bone but hitting every possible nerve, it's a pain most of us could never endure. But that's not what is doing him in. 
not by any stretch of the imagination, the thing that is driving him to his knees, that's causing him to plead, the thing that's opening up his visible, physical skin and allowing blood to pour through it, is the unparalleled torture of what it will take for him to make you flawless. God is about to become sin. He made him who knew no sin that we might become, finish it with me, church, the righteousness of God. <laughs> That's what's making him sweat great drops of blood. He can hear the echoes of himself on the cross. Father, why have you abandoned me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The intensity of this moment has driven him in traumatic shock because he's about to take on sin, and sin means separation. And I don't often leave you hanging, but I'm going to leave you hanging this morning with three verses that will walk you right into Good Friday. Let me show you these. Matthew 26, 36. Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there to pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. I put two Greek words in your notes this morning to help you understand what he's enduring. I'm not going to get into them right now. It talks about this deeply grieved and deeply distressed. Keep going. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Here's the last one. And he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing, once more, three times. Daddy, I know this is what it's going to take. If it's possible, if there's any other way, I do not want to be separated from you. He's praying this way not because he's going to launch an attack on Rome, but because he's going to attack the one true enemy. God is about to do what it takes to make you flawless. What is going to cost him? Everything. Everything. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's why Paul can write so emphatically in Romans chapter 8. Look at this in verse 32 to end it. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Meaning eternal life. 
Meaning an inheritance in heaven with that one because he made you flawless. The God who took hell for you did not do it for nothing. He did it to make you flawless, church. I hope you go out of here with that memory in your mind as you celebrate Easter week and hopefully come back on Good Friday. Pray with me. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ in this auditorium and those who are watching that this Easter week will be like none other because you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, had imprinted our mind with a visual reminder of what it cost you. And even though we struggle, like the writers of the Bible, to get our mind around it, God, remind us of what we've heard this morning. Bring these verses to mind, God, as we interact with our social circles, and especially as we celebrate you this Easter weekend. I pray especially, Father, for my friends here who may not yet be believers. Perhaps, God, as a result of this time, you've used this to draw them deeper with you. Father, I pray that you would reveal yourself in great power to them. Individuals who need to know you and need to have forgiveness of their sin. God, use this. Use this to draw individuals one step closer. I pray for each of us, Father, now. That you would send us out with your blessing as a result of having heard your word. Now move us to act on it. I pray for this in the matchless name of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. His name is Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Before I let you go, I want to remind you, if you need somebody to pray with you this morning, I'll be down here in the front, but also over in the prayer room is going to be Joe Testa and Dave Schubert, two of the pastors here. Go on over to the prayer room if you want somebody to connect with. If we haven't met yet, I'd be happy to meet you right down here in the front. Otherwise, have a great week.